Now it's time for us to move into our sermon this morning. We are reading through the book of Colossians, and we are finishing chapter 1 today. Our goal is to go through, it's an expository series, which means we're going through chunk by chunk, verse by verse, and the focus is on what is Paul saying to the church in Colossae in the original context, and then what can we as a church learn from listening in on that conversation. Uh, Right now I'm doing a class, as I mentioned, on how to read the Bible, and one of the things we're going to talk about is the importance of recognizing that usually when we're reading the Bible, we are listening in on a conversation rather than being spoken directly to, and so we learn from hearing what God has said to, what Paul is saying to the Colossians and what the Holy Spirit says through that. Uh, But we want to start by understanding what was Paul saying to the Colossians. And we started out by recognizing that Paul, who has not met the church in Colossae, has heard about them and compliments them for being a fruit-bearing church. They are participating in the bearing of fruit through the gospel around the world. And what he means by that is that they are, their behavior is being transformed so that they love each other radically the way Jesus does. And so they have this community that stands out from the rest of the city of Colossae that is bound by this unique, radical kind of love. In the next section, we talked about how Paul sets a goal for them of being people whose lives um, please God. And it's not that God is, is judgmental and hard to please, but it's that out of gratitude for the grace and the generosity God has shown us, we want to give back to him. And the only thing we really have that we can give back to God is our lives. And the way Paul talks about it, he talks about it, he uses biblical language that's connected with artwork like the beautiful decorations of the tabernacle. And so it's, it's a, we're supposed to give lives, present lives to God that are beautiful, that, that please him, that he enjoys. Now, in order to do that, that's a 100% commitment. And so last week, we looked at this passage where Paul talks about Jesus, and essentially his point is arguing why Jesus is worth that 100% commitment. Because there were other things that the, the Colossians could invest in. They could be investing their lives and their time in other gods, and Gentiles would normally play the stock market, and they'd have a portfolio of gods that they worshipped. Or the Jews would have been telling them to focus on the temple and temple rules and temple cleanliness. But Paul says, Jesus, you, if you're going to reach God, you have to reach him through Jesus. And to reach him through Jesus, you have to 100% commit to following him. Now today, we're going to pivot to the last part of Paul's introduction to this letter, where he starts talking, he tells them a little bit about himself, but in the process, what he's really focusing in on is another question that comes out of this challenge to 100% follow Jesus, which is following Jesus is hard. And if you're going to do it the right way, it's going to cause problems for you. It's going to be difficult. It may even cause you to suffer. And you could even, there are thing, ways you could tweak the message of Jesus so you wouldn't have to suffer as much. You actually don't have to tweak it that much. You have to tweak it in very important ways, but you could keep most of the good things Jesus said and make it easier on yourself. But Paul is wanting the Colossians to be 100% loyal to Jesus and what Jesus has called them to do and to be. And so the, what he's going to do in this next section, he's going to make the case for why they should be willing to endure suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God and why they should be willing and why he personally is willing to suffer for the sake of the message that he is preaching and the significance it has for the world. So we're going to read this passage, which opens with a a real doozy of a verse. 
And uh, then we're going to go through it and, and piece together what Paul is saying to the Colossians. So I encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, to have it open to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And I'll also encourage you, if you are able, to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, this passage starts with a doozy of a verse, and it's one that, if if you are interested in theological arguing, is very tricky. It has a couple of, of puzzles. It has a puzzle for Bible scholars, and it has a puzzle for everyone. The puzzle for Bible scholars is this part where he says, uh, I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. Now, the reason why that gets uh, heresy radars going up, not that the Bible is heretical, but that, that you might get some weird readings, is what it seems to sound like, what it could potentially sound like at first glance, is that the suffering of Jesus was not sufficient for our forgiveness. So we actually have to do more or Paul has to do more, somebody has to do more in order to get us fully saved. Like Jesus gave us a steep discount, but we still have to pay a little bit left, or something like that, right? Now that is not what Paul's saying. That doesn't make sense with everything else that Paul says in the letter. In fact, it doesn't make sense with his main point that we just looked at, which is that Jesus is uh, the only one who can reconcile us to God. But it is a tricky verse, and he says something that we, on this side of all those theological debates, we wouldn't have said it that way, right? Because like, oh, that could be misinterpreted. So we're gonna. So that's one puzzle. But I would argue the more important puzzle in this section is the part that kind of flies under the radar. He says right off the bat, "I rejoice in my sufferings for you." It's an odd, odd perspective. I mean, we can, we can understand being willing to endure suffering. We could understand saying, I'm joyful in spite of my suffering. But he says, I rejoice in my suffering. That is a very strange perspective. And learning from that, I would argue, is a bigger challenge than learning from the theological puzzle in this verse. But it turns out that those two are connected. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the rest of this passage, and then we're going to come back and be able to better understand what Paul is talking about when he says that he's rejoicing in his suffering and he's completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to figure out, we're going to talk about why Paul is suffering. 
What, what is the context for this? And we, if you had read the whole letter, you would know that Paul is in prison. The le- very last thing he says to them is, remember my chains. He's writing this letter from prison. And why is he in prison? Well, the way Paul sees it, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. So for Paul, he is suffering in some way for the Colossians. And, he's, um, and even the Christ's afflictions are the afflictions for his body, for the church. Okay? So there's this idea that it's, he's suffering for the church, and specifically for the Colossians. Now, when you recognize that, if you're really familiar with Paul's writings, that will make your brain jump to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul describes himself this way, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, that's an interesting phrase. He could have said that he's a prisoner on behalf of Jesus Christ. And he does consider himself a prisoner on behalf of Jesus Christ, that his allegiance to Jesus is why he's in jail. But that's not the point he's making here. We might also expect him to say that he is in jail on behalf of Christians, but he says that he's specifically in jail on behalf of Gentiles. Now, why is that? Now, Paul did not only take the gospel to Gentiles. In fact, he started in the synagogues when he went to a town. So he preached to everybody. But what he seems to be indicating is that the reason he's in jail has to do uniquely with the Gentiles. And you can see a clue to why this is a problem if you look at the way people objected to Paul's preaching in the book of Acts. In chapter 16 of Acts, people get mad at Paul and his companions and the work that they're doing, and they say, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Okay, so they are Jews, and they're promoting things that the Romans aren't allowed to practice. Now, to explain this verse, you have to know a little bit about the politics of the Roman Empire. It's a very, very recent idea that religion and politics are separate things. It's a very recent idea. And in the Roman Empire, they were absolutely the same thing. In fact, the emperor was a priest, and he was someone who could receive prayers. He wasn't quite yet a god, but he would become one when he died, unless the Senate didn't like him afterward, and then they might not do that, because that, their Senate's apparently more powerful than ours. But uh, they, would, they would worship the emperor, and they had this idea that the fate of the kingdom depended on whether the people kept the gods happy. And so it was legally required that everyone participate in the worship of the gods, specifically the gods that were uh, in charge of the welfare of the empire. The main reason, the, the thing that triggered persecutions against the church later on was when Rome would, the Roman Empire would run into some kind of problem. They would start to fail at things, lose battles, lose wars, things like that, natural disasters. And they say, well, why did this happen? Well, it's because there weren't enough people praying to our gods. And so they, that's why they would persecute the Christians. Now, the Jews had a special exemption because the Romans had learned that the Jews are just never going to go by, they're never going to go for the system. So if we want any peace, we'll make an exception. The Jews can worship their one God. They don't have to pray to the emperor, provided they pray for the emperor. And so the Jews were required to pray for the emperor at the temple. And that was the idea, is that they can worship their one God as long as they're still supporting the government with their prayers. The problem, and, and beyond that, the Romans didn't care what the Jews believed. As long as the Jews did their prayers, they didn't care who they thought was the Messiah. 
In fact, they'd prefer they follow someone that the Romans thought were dead because he's less likely to lead them in battle. So they don't care about the debates that the Jews are having about their religion. They just don't care. What they care about is when you start telling Gentiles to follow the Jewish God. Those Gentiles don't have exceptions. They don't have legal permission to follow one God. And it's dangerous to have a whole bunch of Gentiles start switching their allegiance from the gods that the Romans think are keeping their empire afloat to this crazy one God that these, these hicks from out in the western or the eastern corners of the empire believe in. Like it's, it's a dangerous idea. And so that's why Paul is in prison for the Gentiles different, as opposed to the Jews. The Romans didn't care what he said to the Jews. But when he starts telling the Gentiles that they can follow Jesus, that's a problem. So Paul was thrown in prison because he had been inviting Gentiles to give their loyalty to Jesus. And the empire threw him in jail for doing that because the rulers saw Paul's message as a threat. They saw it as a threat to their kingdom to their authority, to the stability of their rule, for Gentiles to start worshiping the one God. There's a couple of reasons. One is because they believed that their empire stayed in charge as long as they kept their gods happy. The other thing is that they weren't all that comfortable with this name, this title, Christ, that Jesus, that the Christians kept giving Jesus, because Christ means anointed one, it's king. Christ is a royal title. And so another thing that people objected to, another objection that we see when Paul's preaching is they'll say, they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, Jesus. See, when they put their faith in Jesus, Jesus Christ, you could also translate that as giving their loyalty to King Jesus. There is loyalty being changed here when they become Christians. Now, when we look at that and we see, oh, they're, they're concerned that Paul is a threat to them, well, that's, that's, they're confused. They misunderstand. Christianity isn't a threat to the empire because we submit to the authorities. We don't, we don't do that kind of stuff. We don't get involved in politics. So they're, they're confused. They're wrong. But we're going to come back to that and find out whether they were wrong to see the gospel as a threat. But there's one other thing that we should notice, which is not only did Paul get thrown in jail, but he is still in jail. And he's going to get, depending on how you understand his biography, he's definitely been in jail before, and he's probably going to get thrown in jail again before they finally kill him. He has this habit of getting thrown in jail and of languishing in jail. And why is that? Well, you can see the reason in Colossians 1.28. In this translation that I've been using, the Christian Standard Bible, it says, We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, we talked about this in my How to Read the Bible class this morning, that uh, the Bible was not written in English. So we're working with translations. And I think that no one translation is sufficient to understand the Bible. They're, they're like golf clubs. Okay? So if you want to read big chunks of the Bible at once, like for a devotion, and you just want to get the spirit of it, uh, there are really easy translations for that, like the um, Common English Bible or the Contemporary contemporary English version. And there's a bunch of them out there. Um, that's, like your, that's like your wood, right? That, that comes with long distances. The Christian Standard Bible that I've been using is more like an iron. Um, it's more like an iron. You know, it kind of, it's in the middle. It gives you um, 
uh, more cl- a closer translation word for word, um, but it's still very smooth to read. But sometimes you need to really look at the details, and that's when you pull out a putter. So I'm going to switch to a putter. Um, the one I use as a putter is the New American Standard Bible. It's clunky, but that's because it's, it's more word for word. And here's how that verse gets translated in the New American Standard. And I want you to see if you can notice the theme, the drum beat that goes through this. We proclaim him, admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. What is Paul really driving home in that verse? Every person. He says it three times in one verse. It's so repetitive that most translations remove one of them to make it smoother English. But he's saying every person. Paul is being obstinate here. If the Romans are reading his mail, they can tell he's not backing down because he is still dedicated. We don't know how long he's been in prison at this point, but it hasn't changed his mind. He is still going to preach the gospel to every person. He's not going to respect those lines that they've drawn. So Paul is still in prison because he refuses to compromise his message. That's, That's his suffering. He is in prison refusing to change that specifically that part of his message. This is why I said you can make small changes to the Bible, to the gospel, and make it more palatable, make it easier, right? If all he had to do was say, you know what, fine, you're right, I won't go to the Gentiles, I'll stick with the Jews. And then, they, he, they might, I don't know if they would have let him out of jail, but he wouldn't have got thrown back in again. Or he could have said, you know what, I'll make them become Jews first, because there was a process for Gentiles to become Jews, and then they got the legal exceptions, and then they could become Christians. He goes, okay, I'll do it, I'll make sure they get circumcised first. That would make it easier. But he's not going to do that. The question is, we're going to move on to the next section where he, he starts to make this reference to a mystery. And that mystery, if we understand what the mystery is, that helps us understand why he's so dedicated to this part of his gospel, a part of the gospel, and also why they saw this as a threat. So let's look at the next section. It says, I have become its servant, the church's servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I've highlighted three words on there, hidden, make known, and mystery. I've highlighted those because this is the only place in the New Testament where those Greek words appear together which is not that big of a deal, except that if you look in the Greek Old Testament, there's one place in the Old Testament where these three phrases occur together. And that means you should pay attention, especially with a big word like mystery. So what does Paul mean by mystery? Well, it turns out that Paul is referring to a passage in the Old Testament that everyone who knew the Old Testament would have known about and would have been paying very close attention to. The one place where these words appear together is in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel was a prophet who was taken into exile in the Babylonian Empire, and he served the king of Babylon. And the king had a nightmare, and he asked his wise men to to interpret it, and they couldn't. And then Daniel came along, and Daniel was able to interpret it. And in that story, it says, The mystery, same word, was then revealed to Daniel, and he declared, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king. Now you notice those three words recur. 
the same, exactly the same. Um, we don't have time to go through the whole passage this way, but also notice that wisdom, uh, understanding, and knowledge are also repeated words that overlap. So there's actually a bunch of repeated words that make these connections. So Daniel is using these words to say that God has revealed a mystery to me, and he has given it to me to make it known to the king. So what is this mystery? Well, it turns out that the king had a vision of a statue, and the statue had a golden head and silver chest and bronze thighs and um, mixed clay feet. And then a rock came down and crushed the statue and turned into a mountain that covered the whole world. So Daniel says, well, it turns out that that statue is that this is, a, this is coming events. This is telling you about world politics. The statue is a series of empires. So there's Nebuchadnezzar's empire. He says, you're the golden head. And then after you, there will be another kingdom and then another kingdom and then a fourth kingdom. And that fourth kingdom is like a mix of multiple kingdoms. And then in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and the kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end but will itself endure forever. That's the mystery. And remember that for, most, for the people of this time, that mystery, that prophecy has yet to be fulfilled, as far as I can tell. So this was a really big deal back then. If you knew part of the Bible, you probably knew this part because it's what the Jews claimed was about to happen as declared by their God. So in the Old Testament, the mystery refers to God's plan to overthrow the nations. That's the mystery. And this is really important because if you're keeping score at home, if the head is Babylon, Babylon was replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire, which was replaced by the Greek Empire, which was replaced by the Roman Empire. So we are at the stage where that rock should come hurtling out of the sky and crush it. That's what the Jews are waiting for. Like it's, it's time. Like it's actually a little bit past time. Like God's a little behind schedule, but I'm sure he'll be here with that rock that will destroy everything. Right? That's what they're waiting for. So everybody's really paying attention to this. When Paul says, I can unveil the mystery to you, people pay attention. But Paul is, you didn't get, there was no problem with your history classes no empire came in and destroyed the Roman Empire at this point, right? The empire, Roman Empire technically lasted until the 1500s. So that, that part didn't happen the way the Jews were expecting. But Paul is saying that the mystery has been fully revealed. He says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the mystery for Paul? He says, it's Christ in you. Who, what does Christ mean? King of the Jews. Who is you? It is now. It is now. Absolutely. Amen. But when Paul is talking, it's the Colossians who are Gentiles. Right? Which is a weird thing to find out that there's this patch of people over in Colossae who are giving their allegiance to the king of the Jews. Right? That's weird. And Paul in Ephesians talks about this mystery too, and he defines it there as, the gen- this is the mystery. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the mystery, that Gentiles are joining, joining with the Jews and following Jesus, with some of the, you know, the, joining with the Christians, joining into the church to follow Jesus. 
This is also why it's important that they're not getting circumcised. They're doing it while they're still Gentiles. They're not becoming Jews. The Gentiles, the nations, people of the nations are starting to follow Jesus. In one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, Paul puts it together this way, just, just the chapter before that reference. He says, Jesus is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Uniting Jews and Gentiles. He wants to unite them to each other, reconcile them to each other. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. This is an important thing that we need to recognize is that Jesus doesn't, rec- doesn't reconcile individuals to God. He doesn't reconcile individuals to God. We get into the kingdom at a group rate. He reconciles us to each other and he reconciles the body to God. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, that does mean you make an individual choice to follow Jesus, and he brings you into the church. And you, It doesn't mean that your salvation depends on what congregation you go to or anything like that. What I'm saying is that, he, that being a Christian, in part, essentially means being reconciled to other Christians, and to being part of this body that God is creating. You don't get your own section in heaven, right? Much as we may think we do. That's not how it works. So, Jesus... The, the message that Paul is preaching is that Jesus is reconciling humanity to each other in, in the church and reconciling the church to God. There's reconciliation being made between human beings and each other and between humanity and God. So in Jesus, God revealed that his plan was to reconcile with humanity, not conquer them. Because notice, members of the Roman Empire are switching allegiances to Jesus right under their very nose. This is that rock crushing the statue It's a bottom-up thing. He doesn't come in and assassinate the emperor and take over in Rome. Jesus reconciles with the citizenry. The citizenry is probably the wrong term because most of these people, the early Christians, probably weren't even citizens, most of them. They were the slaves and the women and the unimportant people and also some important people and some rich people, all kinds of people. But Jesus is drawing their allegiance right from under the kingdoms. And that's his chosen method. And that's the kind of kingdom that endures. Because the thing is, if you, if you take your throne by assassination, that means your throne can be taken by assassination, right? Like, easy come, easy go. That's a pretty consistent rule in history. But Jesus is building his kingdom by drawing the allegiance of people of all nations to himself, not by conquering armies, but simply by reconciling with them and drawing them into his kingdom. That's the mystery that Paul is revealing, that there was no war. You, there, you missed it. It actually happened on Calvary. And all you have to do is switch sides. All the Gentiles can follow Jesus. And that mystery is a threat to the empires because it completely changes what's possible for humanity. The idea that we can be reconciled to each other out from under the kingdoms is a threat to those kingdoms. The fact that you can be reconciled without the powers that claim to be essential to your well-being is a threat to their power. So the gospel is a threat to the Republican Party. It's also a threat to the Democratic Party. And it always has been and always will be because it is a threat to their claim that you need them to protect you from the other side. The gospel is a threat 
to the claim that every nation, including the United States, makes that you need them to keep you safe from your neighbors and from the threats around the world. That the only way that we can be reconciled is through legal structures and through the power of, of uh, all these different powers. And it's not just political. Your, your job, very well, your career, very well may have this, this pathway of, of accolades and trinkets that you can win in order to establish that you have led a worthwhile life because you achieved these things. And when the gospel tells us that the most worthwhile thing you can achieve is being reconciled to Jesus and being reconciled to humanity through him, that undermines the claim that that power has on your life to tell you this is how you need to live and this is how you can be worthwhile. The gospel is a threat to the media that tells us that you have to keep up on everything and you have to know all these and you have to be part of all these, these subcultures and know all these things in order to have a place, in order to mean something. All of these ways that our societies tell us you need this in order to have a place in this world, in order to be safe in this world, those are all undermined by the gospel because it turns out what you need is Jesus. And that's it. Now, it doesn't mean that participating in those things is wrong, but they don't just want you to participate. They want you to depend on them. And we only need to depend on Jesus. Now, we can make a profound change to our culture by participating in those things while depending on Jesus. But ultimately, as Christians, what we need to do is to depend on Jesus. Because Paul, later on, this is my ultimate favorite verse in the Bible, um, and I think the congregation knows this because I'm always going back to it, and we're in Colossians, so of course I'm going to get here. It's Colossians 3.11. In Christ there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. That is a crazy message that no one would be able to say outside of the context of the church. Now, the Romans would have liked to be able to say that, but that's because they would, have, they would have said because Roman power holds everybody in line. That's why these don't... Like, the Roman Empire claimed to be able to hold everything together and give everybody hope for peace and safety at the point of a Roman sword. But they never actually accomplished anything like that. They never brought people together. They just got them... It's like when mom and dad tell you to make up, but you don't mean it. And as soon as they turn their backs, you go back at it. So this is the mystery that Paul is proclaiming, is that we can actually depend on Jesus for the things that we, for, for security and for meaning and for purpose in this world, rather than all the other things that claim our allegiance. And this then leads us back to the first verse. It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. Now what Paul is saying here. When he talks about the uh, uh, Christ's afflictions, we might better translate that as the Messiah sufferings. I think that's how I put it in your outline. Because he's actually, he's using the definite article, he says the, and this is a phrase for something that Jews and Christians both believed would happen as a part of the coming of the Messiah. That in the coming of the Messiah, in the bringing of the kingdom of God, there would be a period where the church suffers. Now when he says afflictions, the, the, the afflictions of Christ, Paul never uses that word to refer to Jesus as dying on the cross. Okay, so he's not talking about Jesus dying on the cross, but he's talking about what elsewhere he will call the, birth, the labor pains of the coming of the kingdom into the world. 
When, Paul, when Jesus talks to the disciples at the temple, he tells them that there will be wars and rumors of wars, and all these events are the beginning of the labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will, multipl- because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to, the, to all nations, and then the end will come. These are the labor pains. These are the sufferings of the Christ. The, the mis- sufferings of bringing the Messiah's kingdom is that people will testify and they will suffer because of it. And so, this is what Jesus is referring to. It's not the saving suffering of Jesus. It's the revealing suffering of Jesus. It's the suffering that his people undergo to proclaim the gospel. Because notice how it ends. It ends with the good news being proclaimed all around the world through this testimony. Because the Messiah's sufferings are the trials that the church endures in order to testify to the gospel. And what you'll see consistently through the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, is that the church testifies to the gospel by the way they faithfully suffer. But the fact that they will suffer and not give up the message that's been entrusted to them. And because they stick to it, it is a testimony to the world that they're serious. Right? Paul is claiming that this gospel was given to him verbally by Jesus on the Damascus Road. And what would it have meant if they put him in prison? He said, never mind, I must have misheard. Sorry, let me out. As opposed to the fact that he will stay in jail for years and will ultimately be beheaded without ever being willing to say that Jesus didn't say that to him. That is part of his testimony to the world, that is, and that is what the church does. So by suffering in prison, Paul is doing his part to testify to the gospel. That's what he means. There is still work to do in proclaiming the gospel to the world by staying diligent and faithful to the message of Jesus, and that's what I'm doing when I'm in prison. And that's why he rejoices that he's in prison, because he sees it as an opportunity. Because if he hadn't been thrown in prison, he would have missed an opportunity to testify to the world about the truth of the message of Jesus. So he sees it as a good thing. It's not just something he's enduring and he's willing to get through, but he, is, he is, sees it as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel that he otherwise would not have. And that proclamation, that proclamation is not just about saying... Uh, testifying to the world the truth of the gospel, but it also then encourages the church. And that's what he's talking about in this letter. Because he's, this letter is written to the church. And so he outlines for them what he wants them to learn because he's going out of his way to tell them about his suffering. He says, I want you to know about this because I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So first of all, he says that I want them to be encouraged or strengthened um, by being joined together in love. As they are reassured that this reconciliation that happens is essential to the gospel, it reminds them that they are meant to love each other and that there is a reason to love each other. So it encourages them to double down on this, this element of the gospel, which is that we are reconciled to each other. Second, he wants them to have all the riches and complete understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. He wants to make sure that they understand the mystery because this is why he's in jail. So every time somebody says, why is Paul in jail? 
Well, because he was saying this. Well, why did he say that? Well, apparently Jesus said to him, well, why didn't he change this? Well, he just won't. He, he still says Jesus told him that. Like, it encourages people to, to understand they're going to be talking about the fact that Paul is in jail because he's saying that God is uniting Jews and Gentiles and all people under Christ. There were people preaching the gospel who said something different, that, that if you become a Jew, then you can access Jesus. But Paul is in prison because of that part of his message. Now everybody is going to know about it. And finally, he says, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. He says, the final reason I'm telling you this is because I know you're going to hear people make some really good arguments for why I'm wrong. And I want you to hear about my suffering, the fact that I'm not taking this lightly. I'm serious about this. So that you, and I'm rejoicing that you are well-ordered. That means like they, they have their understanding of the gospel right. I'm rejoicing that you understand this now, and I want you to stick to it. Because the Colossians are going to face the exact same challenge that Paul has. It is going to cost the Colossians to stay true to the gospel. They are going to become uncomfortable because they're saying the same thing that Paul is saying, and the powers that be and the culture around them is going to have the same objections, and they're going to have to decide, am I going to stick to this message, or am I going to change it? Am I going to try and avoid the suffering that comes with sticking to this? So the rest of the book really goes on from here. This is where Paul starts the main body of the book to get into these core issues of what it means to follow Jesus and for Jews and Gentiles to be united together in one church and to be saved by grace through Jesus instead of through keeping the Jewish law really well. That's what the rest of the book is going to be about. But for now, what we learn is that Paul's suffering encouraged the church to stay committed to the mystery of Christ, and that's what it's meant to do for us today. As we listen to Paul tell the Colossians to, take, to be encouraged by his suffering, we can watch that and also be encouraged by his suffering. And so as we close, I've moved this last section to the back of the sermon notes. Um, these are the questions that I want you to ask yourself because the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we face the same kind of challenges today. So the first question is how well do you understand the riches of the mystery of Jesus. I think I've changed it. How well do you appreciate? Yeah, how well do you appreciate? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, about the importance of understanding the significance of the message of Jesus. It's possible for us to know the story and know some of what it does, but not really appreciate the riches of the mystery of Jesus. And Paul twice in this passage talks about the riches of it, the wealth of it. Think about how it changes the world to find out that God sent his son to die for all people. If you think that all religions are the same, ask yourself, does it make a difference whether God was willing to die for you or not? Does that change your relationship with God? Not just willing, but whether God died for you. Does it change the way we should live in this world if God is love and express that through suffering? Does it change the way this world ought to work and the way we ought to engage in the world if God's chosen way of overthrowing the kingdoms was to die for them and to invite them into his kingdom? That changes the world. That changes the rules. That changes what is possible. So the question is, how well do you appreciate that? How well does that reality change the way you live and change the way you treat other people? 
The second question is, do you believe that sharing that mystery is worth suffering for? Because living out that mystery changes the way you behave. It certainly changes the way you talk on Facebook. It changes the way you treat other people. And the truth is that if you treat other people the way Jesus wants you to treat other people, you're going to make some people mad who don't want you to treat them that way. You're going to not be treating people as enemies that, you're, that people around you think should be treated as enemies. You're going to be showing compassion to people that your friends don't think should receive compassion. You're not going to be jumping on bandwagons that every good person would jump on. Even that people say every good Christian would jump on. And there will be suffering involved in that. And also, but we're not just talking about the, all kinds of suffering that we experience can be tied to our testimony about who Jesus is. The way we think about, talk about, and face death is a witness to what we believe about Jesus. And it can be really hard to face death. I mean, the gospel gives us hope, but it also presents a lot of challenges as we're faithful about um, you know, obeying Jesus and, and um, accepting his sovereignty over our lives. The way we face every kind of suffering, the way we parent, parenting is suffering, man. I mainly mean like the anxiety and the concern about a, a human being that, that I love as part of myself and I have to just let them go out into the world? I have to entrust them to other people? I have to let them out of my sight? Yeah, I do. <laughs> and, and there's a way, and the way we handle that and the role that faith plays in that can be a part of our testimony about the fact that Jesus is king and we trust him with our world. And lastly, I'll ask you, are you willing to see suffering as an opportunity? Because every one of us will face a temptation to maybe just make some subtle changes to the way we act or the, the way we speak or the way we present our Christian life so that we don't have to suffer. There's a quote in a DC Talk song Back in the 90s, yeah, DC Talk, and, and it stuck with me, it stuck with me, it's a, I forget who the guy is, he says, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who proclaim Jesus with their lips but deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving generation finds unbelievable. Clearly, I've heard that song a lot. I would, I would actually say I've come to disagree with that. I think, I think that the most powerful cause for atheism today is Christians who do everything they can to avoid suffering for their faith. Who do everything they can to make sure that being a Christian won't cost them anything. Because there's a lot of rhetoric around today about, you know, every once in a while, well, probably every day, you see another video on YouTube about how Christians are being persecuted in America and how this is happening and that is happening. And first of all, I think if, if you feel persecuted as a Christian in America, you should go talk to a Christian in China. But second of all, should Christians respond to persecution by trying to change the power structure so we won't be persecuted? That's what anybody would do. Everybody does that. Everybody tries to change the power structures to their own benefit. Christians are supposed to see suffering, persecution or otherwise, as an opportunity to show that we actually mean it, what we say about Jesus. And when we do everything we can to avoid following Jesus costing us anything, we're actually sending the opposite signal. We're actually saying, yeah, we'd, we'd rather not. It's more important to us not to suffer. And as we have opportunities to show that we mean what we say, 
That means we can show people the truth of the gospel. I'm not saying we should run out there and look for persecution. But as Christians, suffering is an opportunity. It's to be expected. Jesus says it will happen. And it's an opportunity for us to show that we really are loyal to Jesus. We really do trust him. And we really do know that his way is the best way. So I'd encourage you to ask yourself those questions and consider what it looks like to take the next step in following Jesus in your own life. Maybe you haven't given your loyalty to Jesus. If you haven't, today is the best day for you to do that. Maybe you realize that you have been approaching suffering as a Christian. Maybe you're following Jesus and you realize you've been approaching suffering the wrong way. Maybe you've been trying to avoid it. Maybe you've been trying to fight back. Maybe you've been drawing back from proclaiming the full truth because you want things to be comfortable. Maybe you need to recommit to living the truth of the gospel. Maybe you have been, um, you haven't been living out that appreciation that, uh, you're living out the appreciation of the gospel that says that even those neighbors you can't stand can be saved and should be loved. Maybe you are looking for an opportunity to learn with fellow believers and that's what our small groups and our classes are for. Maybe you're looking for an opportunity, maybe God's prompting you to start giving back and to get involved in a service team. We have service teams that do that as well. If you want to make any of these decisions, there are cards in the seat back in front of you that you can fill out. I would encourage you not to let this moment pass you by. If you want to talk to us about any of those decisions, um, you can grab me, you can talk to our church office, you can fill out a Connect card, just get away. Uh, what I would encourage you to do is if you're feeling God working on your heart right now, don't let it get away. Take a step, take action on it, and let him change you in the way he's put on your heart. For now, I'll ask you to stand as we sing our final song.